cannabis sativa is the name of the plant, and the mildest form uh, of drug that can be prepared from it would be marijuana. Smoking the soul-destroying reaper, they find a moment's pleasure. Well, it makes me feel very nice. But at a terrible price. It also gives me a sort of peace of mind. The suppression of the use of marijuana. There's no reason a plant should be illegal. And of the forces lurking behind it. I don't need to medicate with pharmaceutical drugs that make me feel nauseous or sick. Are the most important job this department is now engaged in. Today in the Canadian Podcast... We've made it to the 12th episode, a full year of podcasting about pot. To celebrate, we've got one of the world's leading cannabis journalists, Rochelle Gordon. She's here to talk about the transformation of cannabis media and what it's like to travel the world writing about weed. I think most people just assumed that we were all tourists, but typically, you know, if I were to be asked directly, I usually would say that I would be there for a work conference. Plus, as we near the end of our first season, we're going to indulge in a little self-reflection and a little self-congratulation. We've made some pretty cool episodes over the past 12 months, so we're going to go back to our favorites and have a little podcast party with them. They've been doing surveillance on me in a bunch of locations for at least six months and following me around, although they didn't quite get me. At least until the end of World War II, Japanese people believed that our emperor was the direct descendant of these gods in Shinto. So the royal family and Shinto are like one. And the cannabis for the emperor was always a part of the institution. Mr. Parker was very, very, how should I say it? He was strong-headed about how he wanted the case to go. He would rather go down and lose and go to jail than to compromise his case. That's all coming up after the latest pot news. With the latest pot news, I'm Jay Coburn. It's now five years since the legalization of cannabis in Canada. A paper from the Canadian Medical Association Journal has studied the effects of ending prohibition. Two thirds of adults now get their cannabis from legal sources in Canada, and adult use has risen by 5% from 22 to 27% since pre legalization. There has been a small rise in the number of hospitalizations related to cannabis in the later, most recent part of the study. The paper's lead author, Daniel Myron, called the effects of legalization an unfinished story. In British Columbia, a retired RCMP officer has sued a bar for refusing him service after rolling a joint in the establishment. This is the third time Robin Hayes has done this with a third bar, and it's the third time he's won too. Hayes has a prescription for cannabis. He's been diagnosed with PTSD. He had showed the pub's manager his prescription, but was still barred. Hayes was awarded $10,000 at a tribunal. One year after the first legal cannabis was sold in Thailand, the country's government has signalled they're going to rein in recreational use. The newly appointed Prime Minister has declared that he only believes in medical use of cannabis. Cannabis was legalised in Thailand in 2018, and dispensaries started opening around 2022. But the latest cannabis law to be drafted sets stronger laws against smoking in public. The update aims to keep children away from the rapidly developing Thai cannabis tourism industry. That's the Pot News. I'm Jay Coburn. Cannabis media has come a long way. There used to be a few publications like The High Times, which started in 1974, but they weren't really taken seriously by the mainstream. They were part of the counterculture. They were writing about an illegal drug, after all. But 
As cannabis has drifted into the mainstream, so too has its media. The New York Times has a cannabis reporter now, and a plethora of new cannabis media has sprung up, including our own sister site, Western Buzz. One of those websites is greenstate.com, and they're owned by Hearst Communications. If you don't know Hearst, you definitely know their brands. They're ESPN, Harper's Bazaar, Men's Health, L, Esquire, and a really long list of magazines, newspapers, and TV stations. So they're huge, and they're mainstream. And we have one of their top cannabis journalists on the show today. My name is Rochelle Gordon. I'm the editor of GreenState.com. We're a cannabis lifestyle website. Rochelle Gordon has traveled the world reporting on cannabis. I've written for all types of niche publications, um, including High Times, Cannabis Now, Beard Bros, MG, Skunk, you name it. I've probably written for them. Our producer, Karen Habashi, called Rochelle to talk about life in cannabis media. They started with Rochelle's accidental entry into the industry. I actually used to be in education and I ended up having a little dust up with regard to cannabis and ended up leaving that line of work. And I was fortunate enough to find work writing as a side hustle. And then legal cannabis started happening and I started finding work in legal cannabis. And now I've been blessed to be able to be one of the foremost writers on the subject. And it's been a really amazing journey. I never could have dreamed that I would have a full-time job literally writing about cannabis. It's been really cool. I'm a North African and it's such a huge stigma and a taboo for a woman talking or working with cannabis writing or reporting around it. It's never been heard of. So how was it for you? Like, did you get asked a lot Did you use cannabis? Do you still use it? Or are you just writing about it? And I myself have used it before. So what about your journey? I was actually pretty anti-drug and alcohol in my youth. I was kind of nervous to try cannabis. I had some older friends who consumed and I eventually tried it and I found that I really liked it. I come from a very heavy drinking culture in the Midwestern part of the U.S. I just found that It was so much nicer than alcohol in a lot of ways. And then I ended up going to Amsterdam when I was 20. I was an au pair for eight months in Amsterdam, a little outside of there. And I got to really be immersed in the cannabis culture. You know, this was far before we had any conversations about adult use legalization in the States. So that really just solidified my love of the plant. And As I've grown older, my consumption has really changed. I used to be a very heavy consumer, and now I'm a lot more intentional. I'm consuming a lot more CBD. I really like to do a mixture of CBD flour with THC flour. I have anxiety, and for me, unfortunately, THC doesn't always help. I've been doing a lot of CBN gummies as well, and I find that's really fantastic. So you mentioned that you travel the world reporting and writing about cannabis. How does it work around the world, you know, with places that allow it, but they don't really allow it, sort of? What do you tell them, like, on borders? Do you tell them, oh, I'm a cannabis journalist? I don't know if it's the fact that I'm an American or what it is, but I've never gotten much flack at borders or many questions. I've found that people who are not from the U.S. who are coming here for conferences have had a lot more problems, actually. I was recently in Barcelona 
for Spanibus and we came through France and there were no questions about why we were there. I think most people just assumed that we were all tourists. But I typically, you know, if I were to be asked directly, I usually would say that I would be there for a work conference and typically the context doesn't matter. I would not be dishonest though, but I do caution people to just be aware I would never travel internationally with any sort of contraband. I think that's a terrible idea. You don't want any legal problems. So I feel like honesty is the best policy, though, first and foremost. When you started going into the journalistic side of things and becoming a full-time reporter, journalist, writer, editor about cannabis, eight years ago versus now, did the perspective change The demand for cannabis-related content, especially on the mainstream, is increasing because there are so many more states and more markets coming online. The interest is really, really fascinating, and people want an authoritative, accessible source. And so at Green State, our parent company owns a lot of newspapers and magazines. You know, they own good housekeeping. And when I took the position of editor, I knew that there was a possibility that I could reach more people through their mainstream audiences. And that cannabis may be a niche, but it's one that's becoming more part of the mainstream narrative in the news cycle. You know, especially lately, all the conversations around will America deschedule or reschedule cannabis what's going to happen there. There's a lot of interest in this just in general. And so it's been really cool to see it continue to shift in that way. I remember when I started this journey, I had people in my extended family who said, you're just obsessed with marijuana. This will never go anywhere. This career will never go anywhere. And now I'm working for one of the biggest media companies in the world writing about cannabis. And, you know, journalism, it's a tough beat right now. Overall, more people are consuming content online that regular folks make. They're looking at TikTok, right? As opposed to reading the New York Times. And so there's been a challenge in the media to catch up and they understand that cannabis is trending and it's popular. And so they want to be a part of that narrative to capture that target audience. And so it's been really interesting to see some of the weed publications that were around when I started kind of get scooped up by other companies or disappear and then more mainstream publications rising up. But what I will say is that cannabis news is not just cannabis news, it's news. There was a story, maybe it was about a month ago, that High Times initially ran about how Taylor Swift went to a weed club in New York. And the headline blew up, right? It was on like Yahoo, it was on MSN, it was on like all these crazy places. Well, it actually wasn't true. There was some mistakes in the story. But to me, the fact that something about Taylor Swift and cannabis written by a cannabis publication went so crazy viral in the mainstream, that signaled to me that the niche media is no longer niche. Like we're all part of it. But I mean, anything with Taylor Swift, that's going to hit, right? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, it's just because it's Taylor Swift, like put Selena Gomez, Taylor Swift with anything, I think it's gonna pop everywhere. Do you think the social media is helping the cannabis industry to get more recognition? And that's, that's why the mainstream media is capitalizing on that? Well, yes and no. The problem is that social media really likes to censor cannabis content. TikTok hates cannabis content. There are some creators on there, but it's very difficult. Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, 
They don't like cannabis people either. Many people that I know, including myself, have had their accounts deleted by Instagram for promoting illegal products. And we're oftentimes very, very careful. I'm a journalist. I don't sell weed on Instagram. But the fact that I even have a hashtag, hashtag cannabis, boom, kicked off Instagram. And meanwhile, there's scammers out there. There's hackers out there. There's imitators out there. No problem. But I put a pot leaf in a photograph and I'm censored. And so it's been a really big challenge, especially for cannabis brands who are trying to get through to the audience and reach people because we're constantly being censored. And so, mm-hmm. and for content creators, that's our bread and butter. And so to not have those crucial platforms to share our message, it's, it's really frustrating sometimes. So what do you expect for the next year for the cannabis and media? Well, I think there's a lot of interest right now because of the conversations that are happening in the U.S. on the federal level. And so I think that there's going to be more mainstream reporting on these subjects. I don't think that there's only going to be the niche publications. I think there's going to be more interest from mainstream pubs. And especially, too, when more states come online, those local media markets, they're reporting on it, too. You know, um, I'm based primarily in Minnesota, And we only just recently went legal for adult use. And so everyone around here is reporting on it, right? Every single little step, people are reporting on it because there's interest. And so when a state comes online, there's going to be more coverage ultimately in that state. And so I think we're just going to keep spreading. It's like the roots of a tree, right? We're just going to keep going. That was Rochelle Gordon, editor of Green State, with our producer, Karen Habashi. I'm looking at what we've got planned for the next season of the Canadian podcast, and it's pretty cool. We're going to play around with the format a bit. It's going to be a bigger and better podcast with some fascinating people and stories. So I hope you'll stick around and find out more about that. But the next podcast season does have a lot to live up to, if I say so myself, as well as a stellar collection of interviews by Karen. We've told stories from cannabis history in this segment, which we call the rear view. So for this rear view, we're doing something a little different. Instead of pot history, we're going to tell our own story. Here's a bit of podcast history. In our very first episode, we went back to that pivotal moment in Canadian history when cannabis was first prohibited. It started with a riot in Western Canada, a race riot. 1907, Vancouver. It's early September, and summer is beginning to slide into fall. Thousands of people are gathered outside City Hall, carrying signs that say things like, For a white Canada. The crowd is scared. If you ask them, they'd say that Asian immigrants are going to undercut their wages and seduce their women with opium. Not cannabis. In 1907, it was unlikely that these people had even heard of cannabis. The riot was organized by the Asiatic Exclusion League, a racist organization whose goal was to keep Asian people out of North America. They were influential, and the mayor of Vancouver was a member. At their first meeting, the Liberal MP for Vancouver warned of an invasion of Asiatics who were swarming into our country every month. Newspapers were complicit. If you look at the front pages of the Vancouver province, the first 10 years of the 20th century, You'll see racist cartoons, you'll see the 
talk of the yellow peril and how the bright-browed races of British Columbia are under attack. That's Neil Boyd. He was a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University for 43 years. The fact that you could have these racist cartoons and constant chatter on the front pages about the yellow perils and how British Columbia was being overtaken, that suggests that it was a mainstream view. Anti-Asian racism had been simmering in Canada for years, enabled and even encouraged by various levels of government. And on September 7, 1907, the kettle started to boil. Yet another boatload had arrived in Vancouver of immigrants from Asia. So we had in September of 1907 uh, a gathering of about 10,000 people close to Maine and Hastings, where Maine and Hastings is today. They heard from local conservative politicians, people from the Asiatic Exclusion League, and at the end of the meeting, they moved into the Japanese and Chinese sections of Vancouver and beat people up, destroyed businesses. The rioters did massive amounts of damage to Asian-owned businesses, and the federal government, still allied with Japan by British Association, had to respond. There would be compensation for businesses affected by the riot. So they sent this man to investigate those compensation claims. I have only one wish which I believe you will all share. When human personality will be regarded of greater concern than wealth or property or power, however great. William Mackenzie King, eventually Canada's longest serving prime minister and a champion of Canadian independence. But in 1907, he was a deputy minister for labor. So how did compensation claims after a racist riot lead to cannabis being banned in Canada. It's a story of radical feminism, opium dens, and the Los Angeles chief of police. And it's an episode one of the Canadian podcast, if you want to listen to the rest. In episode two, we dove into the myth of the hashishin and whether the word hashish really did come from a legendary group of desert assassins in the Middle Ages. That really was a wild ride through medieval misinformation and digging through historical lenses to figure out who is telling which story and why. If you want to check that one out, head back to our feed and take a listen. Then in episode three, we got in touch with a man who changed Canada, Aaron Harnett, the lawyer who got the federal cannabis laws fully overturned in Canada. He was just five years into his legal career when he scored his big win. It launched my career, and there was something kind of cheeky about speaking with this BBC reporter with his Tony accent and his serious-minded questions, all the while sitting in bed, drinking champagne, and having a big smile about it all. <laughs> Aaron had met Terry Parker, a man in his 40s with serious epilepsy who used cannabis to treat his seizures. He'd been living with life-threatening epilepsy since he was a child. Epilepsy is the condition in which you have an underlying tendency to have seizures. And a seizure is an electrical storm of the brain. The whole brain gets activated, then the whole body jerks. And each one of those contractions in the muscles, each one of the lightning bolts of the, in the storm. These are tonic-clonic, grand mal seizures, the worst kind that you can have. The ones that can kill you 
the ones that can go on for hours at a time. And he would have one or two a day. And when you think about it, the ambulance gets called and you have injuries as a result of the seizures or the behavior of well-meaning, ill-equipped strangers or whatever the case may be. Life-threatening is not an understatement. To change the law, you need a test case. You need someone willing to fight a criminal charge based not on their innocence, but on the premise that the law itself is wrong. So to Aaron, Terry was the ideal client. Because for Aaron, the end goal was always total legalization. And Terry shared that vision. Mr. Parker was very, very, how should I say it? He was strong-headed about how he wanted the case to go. There was going to be no 11th hour settlement on the courtroom steps. He would rather go down and lose and go to jail than to compromise his case, even if it meant that he was going to have his charges dropped, but it wouldn't help anybody else. That wasn't going to be good enough for him. It's not just a shared vision. The facts of Terry's case made him the perfect defendant to challenge the law's validity under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I realized that he had gone through all of the scientific testing that other cannabis patients had not done. He had been involved in a program at the Addiction and Research Foundation that tried synthetic THC on his condition and found it didn't work. That is an amazing fact that helped to ground our arguments because otherwise the judge could just say, you're premature, you're here complaining, you want to throw out a whole law because Terry likes smoking weed and it helps for his condition, but you haven't tried some of the other legally available THC analogs. Well, he'd already done that and we could put that issue to bed. There's no question that Terry was guilty of what he was accused. He did grow cannabis. He did possess cannabis, and he did hand it out to other people. But that's not the point, and it's not Aaron's argument. Aaron and Terry are eyeing up cannabis regulations, and they're going right for the jugular. It's not Terry on trial. It's prohibition. The trial judge was Justice Pat Lesage. Aaron says he was the perfect judge for the case compassionate, progressive, and fair. But Aaron still needs to build an argument. He starts with abortion and the Crown versus Morgenthaler. That was my template. Because in Morgenthaler, you had a law that had overbroad effects. It was the law against being a party to or procuring a miscarriage, basically an abortion. And it was designed for certain legitimate purposes to prevent the ills, as they were then conceived of, excuse the terrible pun, of a world in which doctors performed pregnancy-terminating acts that were not related to the eminent health concerns and urgent needs of the mother. Well, that purpose was ill-served by the broad nature of the prohibition. The law went way too far, and it had all of these terrible effects. Backroom abortions, or unwanted pregnancies that led to mental health problems for mom and health problems down the road, etc., etc. So the law was on trial. And the reason it was a template in Parker was it was 
a law about life, liberty, and the security of the person as it pertained to autonomous decisions about health. The argument was that the government was forcing Terry to choose between life with no seizures or life of pain and misery. He could take his medicine, cannabis, and be arrested, or he could stick with his ineffective pharmaceutical medication, putting his life at risk from grand mal seizures. In court, they showed, through Terry's meticulously kept diaries and some expert opinions, that he tried every other option. Not only that, even if Terry found a doctor that would prescribe cannabis, there was no legal way to access it. Then there was one moment in the trial where all of that was made crystal clear for everyone in the room. He had not had access to cannabis because he was prohibited from using it while he was awaiting trial because of the terms of bail. Terry had a seizure right there in the courtroom. We were in this tiny little courtroom at Old City Hall. It has a little fireplace. It's like you're in someone's living room. It's a hilarious little courtroom. Anyway, that's where our trial took place because there really wasn't very many people. There was me and Terry, the occasional reporter, and my mother, who was my secretary at the time and who was taking frantic notes because we couldn't afford transcripts. So she was doing shorthand all day. And Terry went down and had a really hard, bad seizure right in the middle of one of the witnesses, I think. And the judge got a chance to see front and center what what this is all about. It Let me tell you, it leapt off the page. You get a chance to see what this is really all about, what suffering looks like, and how, how if he just had access to his cannabis. This case brought a lot of court attention and turned Aaron into something of a superstar lawyer. But even after the first decision, the fight wasn't over. Find out what happened next and hear how blunt the judge's decision was in episode three of the Canadian podcast. Another team favorite was in episode four, where we learned about cannabis in Japanese culture. At least until the end of World War II, Japanese people believed that our emperor was the direct descendant of these gods in Shinto. So the royal family and Shinto are like one. And the cannabis for the emperor was always a part of the institution. This was pretty surprising because Japan has some of the strictest cannabis laws in the world. You can be thrown in prison for five years for possession, even on a first offense. The National Police Agency said on Thursday that over 4,300 people were apprehended in marijuana-related cases nationwide. The record number of incidents rose for a third straight year. But Japanese cannabis advocate Naoko Miki told us about how cannabis is actually an important part of Japanese spirituality. It's so important, in fact, that for the most important event in any new emperor's ascension, they wear hemp robes. It's known as the Great Thanksgiving. For that, they need fiber clothes. It's like a offering of two sets of rolls of cloth. One is silk and the other is hemp. Shinto is the dominant religion in Japan. It's a set of indigenous shamanic beliefs combining nature and ancestor worship. Shinto priests wear white robes made of hemp, fiber from cannabis plants. In Shinto, hemp is a sacred plant which symbolizes purity. 
Hemp isn't just used in once-in-a-generation imperial rituals. Over two-thirds of Japanese people participate in Shinto practices. Nearly every Japanese town and village has a Shinto shrine. So if you go to any Japanese shrine, there is a rope. It's twisted and made into a thick, big rope that hangs in the front of the main building, which is to ward off evil spirit and make the ground sacred. That's called Shimenawa, and every shrine has it. And also there's a big bell that people ring to make a wish for the gods that this particular shrine is enthroning. And the rope that you use to hit the bell is also made from hemp. And the Shinto priests use various tools to purify people and give blessing. That's also made from hemp. Hemp is everywhere in Shinto practices, but cannabis, which hemp is made from, is banned. So how did that uncomfortable dichotomy come about? It's partly because of the U.S. and World War II. Check out episode four of the Canadian podcast to learn more. I'm going to skip ahead a few episodes now to episodes eight and nine, where we had a story so wild, so grand in scale, we had to spread it across two episodes. They'd been doing surveillance on me and a bunch of locations for at least six months and following me around, although they didn't quite get me. Don Briere ran Weed, Smoke, and Gift prior to legalization over 30 gray area dispensaries across six provinces. Don's life has been pretty incredible. Famously, he opened the first non-medical cannabis storefront in North America back in 2004, 14 years before legalization. Meanwhile, a Vancouver store is creating a huge controversy tonight by selling marijuana over the counter to anyone who walks in and wants to buy some. The Decline Cafe on Commercial Drive. He opened that store while still on parole for another crime, though. We had over 30 operations, and basically we had a clip every day. So we were producing a lot of cannabis. He started out as a logger and a steel worker before a motorcycle accident put an end to those careers. So he got into the alcohol industry. I was involved in that for 10 years, and there was something that I didn't like doing. It was a night shift thing and just on and on. So I got into cannabis because I've been consuming cannabis for many years, right? And I just started with a couple of light bulbs in my friend's basement growing some weed. It was a learning process and there wasn't a lot of ways to find out how to grow. There were some books around, so we got a hold of them. We fumbled our way through there and just started growing weed. We were reasonably successful. People wanted more and more. Don's budding business quickly outgrew his friend's basement and they started picking up more properties with their profits. Soon they were growing pot in detached houses, basements and warehouses all around southern British Columbia. The operation grew in size and in numbers. After about six weeks, it started to look like it's harvest time. And then after that, basically you, you have a clip crew come in, usually eight to 10 people, and they would just start chopping down the crop. It'd take maybe eight, 10 hours. Don says that at their peak, the operation had two clip crews working full-time across 30 locations with two people staffing each location full-time. In the end, we were producing about two tons of weed per year. 
So it was a lot of cannabis. In episode eight, Don tells us about the schemes and tricks he used to avoid the law. But eventually, it did catch up with him. In 1999, 11 years after Don planted that first seed in his friend's basement, the police finally caught up with him. Oh, it went down pretty hard, yeah. Don was in one of his warehouses, not one of the big grow-ups. This was more like research and development. One morning, Don was sitting in the office of his 2,000-square-foot warehouse. Between him and the main warehouse space was one-way glass, only transparent from the office and a door. He was paying a contractor when it happened. I'm sitting there, I'm just handing him the $5,000 and $50 bills, right? And I see this guy, and he leans over, and I can see him leaning over, and he's like this, banging on the glass door. And I'm like, what the F? And then I look, and right in front of my truck, there's this young guy, right? It's like he's running on the spot, and I'm looking at his off. It looks like we're getting raided. And then I told the other guys to say, hey, Jim, as he cracked the door open. And so he opened the door, and man, they just came in, like guns up in the air, and they had got a on, all bullshit. And it was like up against the wall, and holy, it was something else, right? Don says they were taken to lockup in Surrey. They kept us in throughout the weekend. We went in front of a justice of the peace, and the justice of the peace said, no, we're not letting these guys out, so they kept us in until we went to court. There wasn't a whole load of cannabis in the warehouse, but there was more than enough. They used my forklift to load all the shit up, <laughs> and then they took my forklift. <laughs> Later on, when I was rearrested, I seen my forklift in the basement of the police RCMP station there. They kept my forklift there and they were using it for whatever, I don't know. But it's pretty funny. Well, not that funny. Don was sentenced to five years in prison. He served a third of that before he got on parole. And that's where the story picks up in episode nine. That's the story of Dekine, the store that was raided on television. And Don's life after that consisted of skirting the law, and eventually becoming a legitimate legal cannabis entrepreneur. Those are just a few of our stories, but there's more, like the tale of the Magu, the Chinese hemp goddess. That one was in episode six. Or how snowboarder Ross Rebliati had his Olympic gold medal revoked, then reinstated over cannabis, but still got banned from the U.S., leading to the end of his snowboarding career. That's episode 11. If you haven't heard any of these episodes, go listen. Honestly, they've been a blast to make. I gotta admit, it's pretty awesome that we have a team of people here who get to research, write, and do interviews about cannabis. So go listen to our stuff and read the articles on westernbuzz.ca as well. Thanks for listening to the 12th episode of the Canadian Podcast and the last one in Season 1. A full year. Not bad, eh? We're coming back for Season 2, though. We're starting with something really special. Tommy Chong, as in Chichen Chong, will be on the show with me. You know, he's such an interesting guy with such a unique perspective on life, spirituality, and of course, cannabis. And with so many crazy stories to tell about being a film star stoner, you're going to love it. And I can't wait for you to hear this interview. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Canadian Podcast. Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. And while you wait for the next episode, why not go to westernbuzz.ca? Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com, a division of Patterson Media.
Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.